I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Richard, do you ever feel like as journalists and podcasters, we're constantly having to get up to speed quickly on really complex topics whenever something blows up in the news? Yeah, I mean, it could be really exciting to be a journalist. We're always having to do this to to pedal faster and and uh, become an instant expert. And now we have the Silicon Valley bank collapse. That financial stuff is more in your bailiwick than mine. True. I've spent a fair amount of my time covering the financial industry and business. Still, this crisis, despite some echoes of the past, is anything but routine. Fortunately. Here at How Do We Fix It, we do have a lot of smart friends, and we're about to hear from one. I think the difference is being a risk person. I know what I don't know. And I also, studying risk and studying where things go wrong is whenever people have counted out a risk, it normally comes back. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? The voice you just heard is that of Allison Schrager, a returning guest on our podcast. Allison is an economist and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where I also work. We had her on the podcast a couple of years ago to discuss her book with the intriguing title, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. It was a book about risk, a subject that Allison specializes in. So we thought that we'd have her back to explain what the heck went wrong with the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. And how do we keep it from happening again? Allison spoke with us from the offices of the Manhattan Institute, which is located in, of all places, Manhattan. A a few explainers. We're going to hear SVB, which is Silicon Valley Bank. We're also going to hear about VCs, venture capitalists, and then the FDIC, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Jim, you start things off. Allison joins us from Manhattan. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thanks for having me. Allison, we've had two weekends now of drama over banks. It started with SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, um, collapsing and then kind of spread. Is the banking system safe or are we still going through all this muddle and mess? Uh, I think overall it is safe. The banking system is still dominated by large banks who actually, other than Credit Suisse, are actually in pretty good financial shape. 
you know, higher rates put more strain on the system and pretty much any bank that's vulnerable, say poorly run, had problems before, is going to be in trouble. But I mean, you can't compare this to 2008 where, you know, a lot of large banks were quite vulnerable. Um, I think the system overall is a lot more stable going in. Higher rates, meaning higher interest rates. Can exactly. you explain why why the fairly rapid rise in interest rates is a problem for, for some banks who are holding fixed rate investments? So the way banks make money is they take in deposits, they pay an interest rate on that. Lately, they hadn't been paying much at all if anything, probably zero. And then they traditionally would lend out their those deposits to someone else and get paid a higher interest rate in that spread. So higher rates, you can imagine, sort of change that. First of all, after a while, depositors want higher rates because they can get a treasury bill or go to a money market fund and, or get a higher return than their zero interest rate deposit. In the meantime, the banks have these longer term assets that are paying a not a very high rate. So all of a sudden that spread gets squeezed and that puts them in trouble. Everyone's saying, you know, these rate heights happen so quickly. Although, you know, the Fed was pretty clear this was gonna happen. And I mean, I guess they, they made a mistake in waiting too long to start and seem to suggest that maybe this will just go away without us doing anything. A lot of people in the financial sector chose to believe that. That is the problem. So you mean that the Fed took too long yeah, which honestly, I thought at the time was very naive, this idea that it would just go away and they wouldn't have to increase rates. It would go away, meaning inflation would go away. Yeah, because remember uh, in 2021, they're like, oh, it's transitory. We're not going to do anything about it. It will just go away. It's supply chain issues. Although anyone who studied inflation knew that was absurd. People have short memories, and actually it has been a very long time since we've had inflation. And if you think about it, like when was the last time the Fed did anything to harm the economy? But like when's the last time like they've done like a Volcker and they're like, we need to really increase rates and maybe we'll cause a recession, but we need to have this pain. It's just, the Fed doesn't do that. It takes away pain. Core inflation is still five and a half percent. Labor market is still really tight. And I just saw that Fed fund futures are pricing in a rate cut later this year. I think a lot of financial firms were just like, just really left unprepared. So Richard and I are both old enough to remember the days of Paul Volcker and when the Fed got a grip on the terrible inflation of the 70s and early 80s by through some really restrictive monetary policies that, that led to a severe recession, but really did help us get out of that era of, of high inflation. Do you think that for many economists, bankers, people, Wall Street people, they'd never really lived through a period of inflation. They didn't really believe that it could come back. And that's what fed this complacency. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. People had become convinced that we had whipped inflation, like not only in the short term, but forever. And you even see some really smart economists arguing that interest rates would be forever low. I was just reading in the New York Times that central bankers still believe that the rates we're seeing right now are sort of a blip and that soon rates will settle into their long term average of like two and a half percent. People still, you know, are thinking, you know, we still live in a low interest, low rate world. I mean, maybe we do, but I think counting on that is uh, looking increasingly naive. We asked you on the show, Allison, because we like you, and also because you're a risk expert. Mm -hmm. What do you know that other people don't about things like everybody feeling 
the same way about the economy, that, for instance, most economists have thought that um, we'd have low interest rates for years. Well, um, I think the difference is being a risk person. I know what I don't know. And I also studying risk and studying where things go wrong is whenever people have counted out a risk, it normally comes back. So if I hear, you know, look at the long history of interest rates and I hear someone say interest rates are going to be low for the next like 50 years. Let's make bets on that. I, alarm goes, bells go off. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe that's one possibility of many. But you don't bank on any one thing. I think I, actually I felt like a bit of a crank for like the last 10 years saying, you know, interest rates could go up someday or, you know, inflation can always come back. And people like looked at me like I was crazy. Really, after 2008, all of the money that was poured in the economy to try to, to get things back on track for years, many economists were predicting that this would be inflationary and then were somewhat chastened when it didn't happen until it finally did. Yeah, I mean, they changed monetary policy a lot. They also started uh, paying interest on reserves, and that turned out to make it not inflationary. There were It was also a very severe recession, which kept demand low. Every recession is its own thing. It was a worse recession than we thought, and you know, the changing the nature of monetary policy made a big difference. But now people made a similar error by sort of being, well, because it didn't happen this last time, it's going to not happen this time either. You mean this time with all of the spending related to uh, both the, the pandemic and then the um, Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Act. And monetary policy. I mean, QE was pretty big in 2008, but it was way bigger when, we, when they did it in 2020. I mean, they were buying almost every uh, inflation-backed security. They were buying almost every mortgage-backed bond. I mean, it was ginormous. So QE is quantitative easing. And after the 2008 financial crisis, the Federal Reserve bought huge amounts of bonds and other securities. Traditionally, what the Fed does is they just would set the Fed funds rate, which is um, the, the rate banks lend to each other at. And that sort of sets the amount of liquidity in the economy and how much you know banks can be free with capital. But then the financial crisis was so severe and you had so much turmoil in fixed income markets from these mortgage-backed securities, no one wanting to buy them, that they just like went nuclear and they cut that rate to zero and they felt that wasn't enough. So they also started buying longer term bonds and those mortgage-backed securities to give liquidity to the market. And I think they also thought to give the market a boost. So then when the pandemic came, we not only just, you know, threw tons of money to the wall with fiscal policy, but monetary policy also went hard. Rates went down to zero. And not only that, there were assurances that they would stay there like indefinitely. And they did bought even more bonds, like all of them. It was a much bigger scale, which also probably fed inflation. Leading into the fairly rapid rise in inflation, most economists, and I think probably officials at the Federal Reserve, believe that interest rates would stay low, low, low for years. Ask a risk specialist, when the vast majority of economists and financial experts say one thing will happen, do alarm bells ring for you? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say, uh, you know, I was probably chastened from thinking things would get worse in 2008 than they did. I wouldn't say I, I was exactly Dr. Doom being like, you're all wrong. I remember thinking, hmm, it's interesting they all think that. 
<laughs> I, I don't know if I would bet money on it, but okay. But I, it seems like a reasonable thing to assume. And people had good reasons for believing it. And very, very smart people believed it. So you never know. So let's get into the SVB collapse a little bit. One really kind of easy, maybe lazy interpretation you hear from some pundits is, oh, well, these Silicon Valley hotshots risking all this money. But Silicon Valley Bank got in trouble not because their investments were too risky, but in some ways because their investments seemed, in a sense, too safe, right? Well, my theory of financial turmoil, I don't want to call this a crisis because I don't think we're at that point is it really all stems from what people think is safe. Safety is sort of the foundation of finance, and it really is also how we price risk. And people sort of all kind of started thinking government bonds were safe, but they're not. I mean, they're safe in the sense that you don't worry that the government's going to default, or you don't worry that they're illiquid. Like you'll always find a buyer for whatever government bonds you have, but that's not enough to make them safe. There's also something we call interest rate risk, which is long duration bonds are very sensitive to changes in bond yields. So if bond yields go up, bond prices on long dated uh, securities go down a lot. You can still sell them, but you can sell it for a lot less than what you bought it for. So that's why it's really important to what we do. It's called duration matching, which is match the duration of your assets and your liabilities. And that means whatever happens to interest rates, your assets and liabilities move together. Now, banks typically don't do this. If they did, they would not make any money, in all fairness, to SVB. But for them, this was a particularly stupid bet because their liabilities, which were their deposits, were so sensitive to interest rates too. And that it was tech firms and VCs that were really dependent on a low rate environment. And once uh, rates went up, they had a lot less money. So all of a sudden people needed their deposits. And also, I mean, anyway, all banks to some degree have this mismatch. They had a much bigger mismatch. And even as rates started to rise, they didn't really do anything about it. And they were told what they were doing was risky. But apparently there was a group at BlackRock who came in and said, gee, you know, you got a lot of rate risk here. And apparently uh, the Fed also pointed that out to them. Although none of these warnings people did anything about. And and. SVB or Silicon Valley Bank uh, was unusual in that it largely catered to one industry and to one kind of player in that one industry. Uh, The industry was tech and the players were VCs or venture capitalists. Yes, who really depended on low rates. I mean, that that industry and that asset class has really been built around a very low rate environment. And so it really was a very sort of risky situation for them to be in. And, you know, here we are. Whenever there's a crisis, uh, it seems like various groups want to come forward and claim the crisis as proof of whatever their political orientation is. And we're definitely seeing that with the SVB collapse on the the right. We're seeing some people say, well, they were too focused on various woke concerns, um, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion on, on the left. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and others say that the fault lies with some uh, rollbacks of some of the Dodd-Frank Act uh, restrictions under the Trump administration. Let's tackle both of those. Do you think that changes in the Dodd-Frank Act had something to do with SVB's uh, situation? 
No, because even if they were subject to Dodd-Frank, this would have happened anyway. The full stress test didn't allow for rates to rise. And banks do stress tests to make sure they survive a recession. Yeah, so the banks lays out a bunch of financial scenarios and you see how you would do if you fit that. And they, those, the scenario only really allowed for interest rates to fall, not go up. So they did relax Dodd-Frank on smaller banks, largely because the compliance of dealing with Dodd-Frank is enormous. And it was becoming clear that, you know, small banks don't have huge compliance departments, that it would just put them at such a huge disadvantage. And we do like small banks for a lot of reasons that, you know, and that's why they relaxed it. But I said, even if they had to comply with it, and even if they had the resources to comply with it, it wouldn't have helped Silicon Valley Bank because they could have met the Dodd-Frank requirements. I mean, a, a lot of the problem is that regulatory policy did see all government bonds as safe, no matter what their duration was. And if you think rates aren't going to increase, then that's a reasonable assumption. The problem is, is that long-term bonds are more sensitive to rate changes. But if you don't think rates change, then, you know, why not? Um, so, no, I don't think that was the problem. And I understand the zeal to real, I think there is a point now that is valid that small, medium-sized banks are maybe systemically important too. But I think we should tread lightly before throwing full Dodd-Frank at them because we also want these banks to be competitive. So that's the criticism on the left that you're deeply skeptical of. What about this claim that's been raised on the right that DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, somehow distracted the bank. I mean, I personally find that really far-fetched, but uh, what do you think? No, I don't think that's right either. I mean, they did seem to have some DEI concerns. They were very proud of their board being diverse in a number of ways. Although I think the problem with the board isn't that it was DEI focused. It was they didn't have a lot of people who really understood banking. You could have a diverse board who does understand banking too. I mean, I think to some degree, like there is... You do have finite resources. I don't blame SVB, but stress testing banks for climate risk, but not interest rate risk, does seem like in retrospect, maybe unwise. But I, I don't think I blame DEI. I mean, I think it was a mild distraction, but there is something just more deeper and fundamental going on than that. We're speaking with risk expert and economist Allison Schrager. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So in the midst of, of all of this, over that crazy weekend when everything was hitting the fan, it, we, we learned afterwards that 
the FDIC was not only going to cover the accounts up to the the legal limit of $250,000 per account, but actually cover all the investments in this bank, some of which were enormous. And that led, uh, triggered a lot of criticism that, that all of a sudden our federal government was maybe potentially guaranteeing all deposits. What's your take on the implications of this dramatic move? You know, I think it's fine. I'm not so as concerned about the moral hazard because I think if you're a bank executive and your bank fails and they bail out all depositors, you've still lost your job. There is certainly a premium that comes from assuming all bank depositors are guaranteed and that people are a little bit more free and banks do benefit from that. I think the bigger problem right now with the bailing out um, the bigger accounts is the inconsistency. Because then the next week um, with Signature Bank, Janet Yellen said the bigger accounts were not fully insured. So now it seems like only, she said only if it's a systemically large bank. So now that seems to be a huge sort of unfair advantage that larger banks have, that you know it's systemically important, that you know your big account is going to be insured, but if you're a smaller bank, it's not. And that seems to be, one, the inconsistency, because it's really unpredictable what, what's insured and what isn't. And also it seems like a really unfair uh, advantage to give large banks. You've mentioned this a couple of times, that we need small banks, and that small banks, when there's a lot of regulation and there are a lot of requirements from the government, can be at a, at a real disadvantage to big banks that have huge compliance departments and have plenty of high-priced lawyers. Why do we need small banks? Why are small banks useful in communities, towns, and cities around the country. Well, I just saw a statistic that it's small, medium-sized banks that are still largely doing consumer lending. So large banks have pretty much gotten out of that business. And, you know, consumers still need loans. You need car loans. You need mortgages. Apparently, a very large share of commercial real estate are loans originating in small, medium-sized banks. And also, I think there is something about the personal relationships that are valuable. And we shouldn't I think we, we see this a lot in the zeal towards regulation is you do this is you put larger firms at a huge advantage and then people turn around and complain about market concentration. You don't get it both ways. Let's talk a little bit about a related phenomenon, and that's more in the political sphere. After 2008, there was a strong sense that the fat cats got bailed out and the little guy didn't. And that led to a kind of free-floating resentment that I think helped fuel the popularity of uh, both uh, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, this populist resentment of elites. Well, here we have a bank that catered to the richest uh, people in America and the most dynamic industry in America, who seemed to have, you could see how people would assume they got a special deal. Or do you think that that might reverberate down through the years and, and feed another wave of this post-pandemic resentment and, and bitterness in, in a populist way? It could, but it really depends on the sort of recession we have if we have one. I think the reason why people got so mad in 2008 is they saw these bailouts for rich people. In the meantime, they lost their house. A lot of people lost their jobs. They saw their um, asset values just tank. In the meantime, these other people got money. And like, well, they had these very real deep losses. Right now, consumers are in a pretty healthy place. The job market's pretty tight. If we end up with just a mild recession or no recession at all, 
I think people will forget about this. But if there's serious economic pain for the little guy, then they'll be mad. So what do you think is going to happen to the economy? Do you think the odds for a mild recession or even a, a bad recession have been raised by concerns about the banking system, which after all is to a large extent built on trust. Yeah, I mean, the odds have gone up. I'm still optimistic we're not going to get a very deep recession just because, I mean, one of the reasons the 2008 recession was so, so bad is the nature of what caused that recession was so damaging to household balance sheets. Housing prices just cratered and uh, the stock market went down. I mean, it just really hit to the heart of consumer balance sheets. And people still have decent balance sheets from all the money we gave them during the pandemic. And they even went in in a fairly healthy place even before we gave them that money. So that suggests that households are pretty resilient. Anyway, I'm less optimistic about a soft landing. I'm not convinced there's going to be a horrible crash landing. So hooray, I'm so glad the government bailed us out. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that, that little uh kind of says a lot, Allison. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank on how- you. Anytime. Okay. Allison Schrager. Next up, our recommendation. So for our recommendation this week, Richard, you said something vaguely disconcerting, something about a test or a riddle you want to present me. It's something that I do every day that's kind of fun and also a time waster. Could it be the New York Times spelling bee? <laughs> See, you're so brilliant. Yeah, you, you, you got it right away. This is a recommendation that, that you uh, gave a couple of years ago on this yeah, show. Yeah, but I, I remember I got the I, name wrong. I, I, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You <laughs> called it the pangram. Yes. And I didn't even know what it was, especially because you, you, you gave me the wrong name. But I, I've been doing it. I've become addicted. And I'm kind of hesitant about recommending it to other people because while it's a lot of fun, it is a time waster. But still, if you're looking for a puzzle or a game uh, that is totally distracting, then uh, this, is, this is good. Uh, this uh, spelling bee. It's really fun and exciting. But I have a secret for how to make this this easier, Richard. I, I highly recommend it, that you don't do it by yourself. You do it in tandem with someone else. And if you can do that with someone who's much smarter than you are, then you get through the puzzle, you know, in 15 minutes or so. And so I, I do it with my wife, Jenny, and that makes it much easier. Well, I do it on my own. Um, because my wife is much smarter than me. But then we compare at the end of the night uh, which words we got, and it's usually a humiliating exercise for me. (laughs) She's definitely more of a genius than I am. And now our conversation about our interview with Alison Schrager The most striking thing for me that she said is warning against the perils of groupthink. Um, The Federal Reserve does deserve some blame for this crisis in creating the impression for years that interest rates would always be low. And that form of groupthink led to a sort of paralysis for for some people in the banking community as, as well as investors. It it is always mind-blowing looking back how people didn't spot these big problems coming, and yet that's part of human nature. It's difficult to build systems that 
resistant to that. There's this temptation to think you could just regulate them more, and the regulators, of course, will catch the problem and force these slacker executives to pay more attention or whatever. But the regulators are often part of the same culture as well. So you can't always regulate your way out of things. And as you add layers and layers of regulation, as, as we did with Dodd-Frank, Dodd you're also raising the costs of being in whatever business you're regulating to the point where you're often squeezing out the smaller players. And that doesn't mean you're squeezing out the shaky or more risk-prone operators. Sometimes it just means you're consolidating the business into a few larger players and so that when there is a failure, it's, it's even bigger. That's not to say the regulation doesn't have its place, but I think a lot of folks tend to assume that, that that's the answer and there is no perfect regulatory regime. I agree. And the response to a banking crisis is often making a choice between something pretty lousy on the one hand and truly awful on the other. I mean, during the 2008 crisis, the government had to rescue the U.S. banking system. A collapse would have been a disaster for the economy with mass unemployment and panic and suffering, much worse than what actually happened. If regulators had let Silicon Valley Bank crash a few weeks ago without helping depositors, a recession or a deep recession in the near future would have been much more likely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow. But one thing we learned from going back and studying what really happened in the Great Depression, which wasn't well understood at the time, was allowing a financial crisis to propagate through the economy means that money just gets frozen. And if people can't get credit, if businesses can't get loans, then everything stops. And it's very difficult to get the, the economy going again. I do think as, as tough as it is and as, and as sometimes morally, <laughs> um, you know, what Repugnant? The, well, that maybe <laughs> is too strong a word, but it certainly, you know, gives one a, a sense of the, you're making decisions that are morally compromised in some ways, because sometimes you, it seems like you're rewarding the people who did the worst job or the people who deserve your help the least. But, but things do need to be done to keep the financial system intact. I guess I reluctantly am looking at this as perhaps a necessary evil, but we'll see. We may well see political repercussions from this echoing down the road, especially since we live in a time when, when I think the public is kind of on a hair trigger to feel resentful, feel that, that the insiders are getting all the benefits in our society and the regular folks are getting left behind. And one um, suggestion that I've heard from the left, which I do like, is it should be much more difficult for bank executives to sell stock in their banks. There are reports in the last couple of days of, of how many shares were sold by both executives of Silicon Valley Bank and also some of the other banks that have faced sharp stock drops. I... I think there should be very strict limits placed on those kinds of, uh, of, of profits being made by insiders and bank executives. You want to force them to keep more skin in the game. Yeah, exactly. Maybe the people who were uh, 
had very large deposits in the banks shouldn't have been totally rescued. Maybe there should have been a partial rescue. Perhaps 90% of their uninsured deposits should have been covered, but not the full 100%. I was thinking the same thing, why they couldn't have engineered something like that. Anyway, there'll be lots more to come on this issue, I'm sure. But uh, And we may have occasion to bring Allison back to explain it all to us again. Yeah, we probably will. Thanks, Jim. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And this podcast is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits, as always. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 